Our scripture text this morning is from Psalm 95. It is a beautiful psalm of praise and worship to our Lord. Hear God's word. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, God, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, and as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. This morning I'm sharing with you a sermon that Tim Keller gave, I think in the early 2000s. Just give you a little bit of context he was facing a potentially bad cancer diagnosis, and he was looking forward to surgery, not really sure how things were going to end up. And in the midst of that situation, he preached a, a sermon on Psalm 95, and he asked this question. How do you face troubles with peace? and rest and equilibrium. I came to realize this weekend that it's not mainly through petitionary prayer. Of course, the Bible is filled with petitions where you go and you make your needs know and you, known and you cry out and you ask for success and you ask for healing. You should do that and you will do that. And it's in the scripture, of course. But the ultimate and main way to handle the troubles of life with peace is not just through petitionary prayer, but through worship. Through worship. This particular psalm, Psalm 95, is the classic text in the Bible about worship. Through centuries, the Christian church has looked to this maybe more than any other single place in the Bible 
to inform our worship. This text tells us almost everything we need to know. It answers the question, what is worship? Why should we worship? And how can we worship? First, what is it? The answer in the Bible and the answer in this text. Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that energizes and engages your whole being, your whole person. Let me break that down for you. First, according to this text, worship is something that engages every aspect of your being, mind, will, and emotions. It's very easy to outline this text. Notice there are three calls, verse 1, verse 6, and verse 8. In verse 1, we are called to worship him with emotion. It's emotional language. Sing, shout aloud, thanksgiving, extol, music. And secondly, in verse 6, we're called to worship him with our will. Not just our emotions, with our will. Because the language is that of submission, volition. Come, kneel, bow down. And lastly, in verse 8, it's the language of reason, the language of thinking. Hear his voice, listen to his voice, accept what he says. It's a language of thinking and understanding. In other words, worship is something that engages your mind, your will, and your emotions, your entire being. And this is extremely important to understand because if you go through a ritual and you mouth and affirm the doctrines and beliefs, and if you do that without ever experiencing in your inner being a ravishing sense of beauty and joy, it's not worship. Or let me flip that over. You could go to a service and experience great emotion. You could weep and have a profound emotional experience. But if it doesn't change the fundamental way in which you live, if it doesn't change your character, if it doesn't change your life patterns, then it's not really worship. Because see what the text says, bowing and kneeling without joy, or on the other hand, shouting and singing without bowing and kneeling in life, it's not real worship. You may be having a cultural experience. You may be having an emotional experience. But it's not worship. Worship entails the entire being. But what is it that engages the entire being? Well, it's an act of assigning ultimate value. Now, what do I mean by that? So if you take a look at the psalm, you'll see that all of the emotion... All of the great engagement is stemming from something that the psalmist is doing. In verse 1 and 2, it says, Sing and shout and come before him with singing. And then look at verse 3. Look at the first word. For. Because. 
He's great. He's king. In the hands are the depths of his earth, depths of the earth. The sea is his. His hands formed the dry land. Now look at verse 6. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel. Verse 7. For he is our God. He's not just a great God. He's our God. And he's a shepherd. And he enters into relationship with us. He's made us his people. All the emotion and all the worship and all the life transformation is coming from, the psal- from something the psalmist is doing. He's taking an inventory of the excellencies of God. He's going over them. He's going through them. He's enumerating them. And he's reflecting upon them until there's an explosion in his life. So the best illustration of this I can give you is this one. Imagine a woman, and she has inherited a piece of jewelry from her mother. Now, it's been around the family for years, and nobody quite knows what it's worth. And half the time, they don't even know where it is. So one day, the woman finds it and says, Oh, that old thing. I think I'll go get it appraised. So she takes it to a jeweler. And he gets his little jewelry eye thingy, and he puts it in his eye, and he begins to look at it. And he looks at it. And he begins to notice the way the facets refract the light. And he notices colors. He notices textures. And bit by bit, as he's looking at it and he's thinking about it, All of a sudden, after several minutes of this, his little eye thingy pops out, and he starts to have labored breathing. And he begins to feel faint because he realizes that this is some sort of ancient, unique piece of jewelry. The craft with which it has been made has vanished from the face of the earth. Nobody even knows how to do it anymore. This is unique in its beauty. It is Priceless. And the reason that all his mind and will and emotion are all engaged is that he realizes the value of what he has in his hand. And he realizes that what he has in his hand is more valuable than, any, than all the jewels in his shop and more valuable than all the jewels he's had in his shop for 30 years. And of course, when the woman comes to understand its true value, she is astounded. She's thunderstruck, and she realizes she is not living in accordance with the value of what she has. Because she didn't understand the true value of it, she wasn't living at all the way she ought to be living. Her entire life has changed now that she sees the value of it. That illustration, better than any other illustration I can think of, tells you what worship is. The psalmist is calling us to do exactly what the jeweler does. It starts rationally. It starts with thinking. It starts with looking at who God is, what he has done, 
It enumerates, it inventories. And it goes on until it dawns on you the value, the beauty of who God is. The very word worship comes from the old English word worthship. Worship is to see what God is worth and to give him what he is worth. To see and grasp his worth in such a way that you live in accordance with it. Most people in this country, we know from the polls, believe in God. They say they pray to God sometimes, and they say, oh, yeah, I believe there's a God. But they have God the same way that woman had that piece of jewelry. Completely unaffected. Completely unaware of the value of it. So the difference between a limp-along life, just-get-along life, and a transformed life, a life shot through with thanksgiving and joy, is not the difference between believing in God and not believing in God. It's worship. It's worship that does it. Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to God, seeing what he is worth and living in accordance with it in such a way that it transforms your whole life. That's worship. Nothing less. It's not a little inspiration. It's not a little pick-me-up. And not, it's not something that makes me feel like I'm part of a community. It's ascribing ultimate value to God in such a way that it galvanizes, electrifies, and changes your whole life. That's what worship is. Secondly, the text also tells us why we should worship. Why should we work at this? And the answer of the text, although you may not see it at first, is in verse 3. The answer to why we should worship God is that you are already worshiping something. You are already ascribing ultimate value to something. Your whole life is already controlled and oriented towards something to which you have described, ascribed ultimate value. So put it this way. The world is not simply divided into people who worship and people who don't. The world is divided into people who worship things that will distort your life, people who worship the wrong things, or people who worship the only proper object worthy of the worship of your soul. There are only two prospects. You are worshiping the wrong things, or you, you are worshiping the only one whose worship will not distort your life. But look at verse 3. Here's the answer. Why should we worship? For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. Verse 3 tells us the very essence of worship is to recognize your heart has already ascribed ultimate value to something. 
And the process of true worship to God is to recognize where your worship already is and transfer it, transfer your ultimate value to God. That's what changes your life. Now, I have a little work to do on this. Every single person has put their hope into something, saying, if I have that, then I'd be okay. Then I'll know who I am. Then I'll have meaning in life. Then I'll be happy. Whatever that thing is, completely orients your whole life. It will completely control you. One of my favorite quotes from Becky Pippert is this. She says, Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who lives for acceptance from other people is controlled by the people he or she seeks to please. But one thing is certain. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. See what she is saying. Of course, you have to live for something. And whatever, whatever that thing is, you are so dependent on it, you so desperately want it, you are so afraid of losing it, you're so freaked out whenever anything goes wrong with it. Be honest. Your relation to it is that of worship. You have ascribed ultimate value to something. Your whole life, your entire being, is oriented around it. Now you begin to realize why the worship of God is absolutely transformative. If you don't understand that this is what worship is, worship is just not sort of coming and doing a duty. Worship is recognizing that you have already assigned something ultimate value in your life. And worship is a process of every time you reflect on God through singing, every time you reflect on him through praising him, every act of worship is peeling yourself, moving yourself off of those things which control you onto the one thing that will not distort your life. So, why do we need to worship God? Because we are going to worship something, and anything else but the real God will distort our life. Now, suddenly, the last point becomes very important. The last point is, how do we worship well? How do we get more skin, skillful at it? There are four things that the text tells us. There are a lot of things the text tells us, but there are only four things I'm going to tell you. And there are four important things you need to know in order to worship well. Number one, community. 
It's so obvious that you miss it. It's one of the most important things about this psalm. It's all in the plural. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He is our God, and we are his people. We are being called to worship in community. We are being called to worship in a group. Now, of course, you are supposed to be good at individual worship, your own personal ability to worship, to praise and to pray. But I would have to say that as far as I understand, my sense of the scriptures over the years is that individual worship is a preparation for corporate worship, which is the real transforming experience. C.S. Lewis, some years ago, put it in a way that is unsurpassed, at least in my reading. He was part of a tiny little trio of intimate, close friends, Jack, or C.S. Lewis, Ronald, and Charles. And they were extremely close. And then suddenly, Charles died. And when Charles died, Jack said, this is terrible, but I guess my friendship with Ronald will be such that I will get more of Ronald than I had before. I won't have to share him with Charles. But to his surprise, he discovered that there were certain things in Ronald that only Charles brought out. And so C.S. Lewis realized, ironically, paradoxically, surprisingly, that when Charles died, he did not have more of Ronald. He had less of Ronald. Because no one individual can draw out the entire personality. You can only know someone completely well in a community. If that is true of a finite being, how much more true would that be of God? I know this goes against our modern, Western, individualistic, consumer understanding of spirituality. I'll drop in on this church, I'll go over here, but mainly I have my own spirituality. You will never know God as he is unless you are in a worshiping community, preferably a small one, a group that you pray with regularly, and a larger one that you worship with corporately. This is the only way you are ever going to know him as he really is, the only way you are going to get an accurate vision. The one-on-one -on -one thing with God does not work. It will not show you all the facets. It won't show you all of the excellencies. It will not give you the great inventory. 
Let's put it this way. The more diverse that a worshiping community is, the better. And doesn't that make sense? The more you have young and old, male and female, all races, all the classes, the more diverse your worshiping community is, the more you're going to get an accurate picture of God. The more you're going to understand him and bridge the gaps in the human race between cultures, between races, between classes. So first, you need community much more than you think you do. And secondly, if you want to get better at worship, you need truth. How does the prophet know God is the great God above all gods? How does he know his hands are in the depth his his hand in his hands are the depths of the earth? How does he know the sea is his? How does he know God is a shepherd? How does he know he is our God? How does he know all these things? Does the psalmist say, I like to think of God as a shepherd? I just like to think of him like that. No. The psalmist has submitted to what the prophets have said about God. The psalmist is submitting to the scripture as the self-revelation of God. And by submitting to it, he is then able to take it and say, now let's look at it. Let's use it. Let's inventory it. Let's look at God's excellencies. And from this truth, he has life-transforming worship experiences. If you don't submit to the truth of the Bible, let me suggest that you'll have two results. Number one, this is not the living God. If you design a God that fits you, you throw out from the scripture anything that you don't like, you have a God that can never fight with you, can never disagree with you, can never outrage you. You have a God that is a cardboard cutout. You will not have a living, worshipful relationship with him. You can't. If you are not willing to submit to the truth of the scripture, but pick and choose and design your own, then you completely cut yourself off from any real ability to have a worshipful experience. And second, you've made it impossible to be part of a community. If you've created your own personal understanding of God that's unique to you, you've isolated yourself, completely isolated yourself, because I submit even to the parts, because I submit even to the parts that I don't like and I don't understand, because I listen to what the prophets and the scripture and the apostles say about God. You know what that means? When I meet a Nigerian Christian woman from the bush, a person who is gender different from me, race different from me, culture different from me, economic class different from me, and educational background different from me. And in spite of all those barriers, if we spend time together talking about Jesus Christ, it will be the same one. I'll be in community with her because I was willing to submit to the same body of truth she does.
The third important thing you need for worship is the Spirit. Now, the word Spirit doesn't show up anywhere in this text. However, it does tell us the purpose of worship is to come into His presence, to come before Him. Look, let us come before Him with thanksgiving. Look at verse 6. Let us kneel before the Lord. Now, this is confusing to some people because they say, why are we talking about coming into God's presence? Isn't God everywhere? Doesn't Psalm 139 say, wherever I go, there he is? Isn't God everywhere? Yes. But why does the Bible also say, David says in Psalm 51, cast me not from your presence. The answer is that in spite of the fact that God is everywhere, by the mediation of the Holy Spirit, if you submit to the truth and if you do this in community, if you understand the purpose and nature of worship, sometimes the Holy Spirit will make you aware of the very presence of God. You will sense his reality. He will be present. Present in his power. Present in his grace. Present in his love. Present in his majesty. Present in all those things. And that is your expectation and your goal. To sense and come into his presence and know his presence. So the four things you need to be skillful at worship. Number one, you need community. Number two, you need the truth. Number three, you need the spirit. And number four, you need gospel, Sabbath, rest. Last thing, look at the very last part of the passage. It's confusing. I mean, the first part of the psalm seems very good and upbeat and seems very obvious, and all of a sudden it gets really severe. It's a real downer. Why would you end the psalm on worship on such a downbeat thing? Suddenly God says, you remember what happened in the desert? You know what happened in the wilderness. There was that first generation that came out of Egypt. They were so stubborn and they were so unwilling to listen to me. And they died in the wilderness. They wandered and wandered and died, and, and it wasn't until the second generation that they were able to experience my Sabbath rest. So why would the psalm on worship end with this? The book of Hebrews in the New Testament makes a big deal about the fact that this is how Psalm 95 ends. And the book of Hebrews asks the question, if it's true Joshua got the children of Israel into the promised land and they experienced the rest, why was it centuries later, in Psalm 95, warns worshipers not to miss out on the rest of God? The Hebrew writer says, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken through David about rest. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We who have believed enter that rest. 
For anyone who enters God's rest rests from his own work, just as God rests from his. So let me put, in, put this in a nutshell. The Hebrew writer is being very logical. Why would David in Psalm 95 warn worshipers to not miss the Sabbath rest of God when Joshua got the people into the promised land? The Hebrews writer concludes the physical rest that the children of Israel experienced must be pointing to a deeper rest that is still available to us and we can miss. There must be a deeper spiritual rest. What could it be? Well, just as God on the seventh day rested from his physical work, so in the gospel we spiritually rest from our good works. And the Hebrew writer is saying is this, Jesus Christ came to earth and he lived the perfect life in our place as our substitute. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. Now religion says, if I live a good life, God will bless me. But the gospel says exactly the opposite. God gives us in Jesus a perfect record that we receive by faith. The ultimate rest is to believe the gospel. Because if you believe the gospel, you rest from your works spiritually. That means you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to know everything is going well in your life for God to bless you. Do you realize that whether you are a religious person or irreligious, you are working? You're working. If you're a moral religious person, you're trying real hard to be good, so God will bless you. If you're an irreligious person, you're trying extremely hard anyway. Because you've got an ultimate value, remember? The gospel ends all that tiring work. The gospel gives you deep and final rest. God already loves you and accepts you in Jesus Christ. Why would this be at the end of a psalm on worship? Because if you don't understand gospel rest, you are going to turn worship into one more work. It's going to be one more thing on your rat race. If I come to worship and do it right and pray well, and I never miss church, then maybe God will bless me. And instead of transforming your life, it will just be one more load weighing you down. And you won't really be serving God. You will be serving the God of morality. You will be looking to yourself and not to him. And you won't have a life shot through with joy and thanksgiving. Do you have that clear insight? Do you understand that? 
you don't have that insight, you need community, you need truth, you need the Spirit, you need gospel rest. That crucial insight, you need that. Otherwise, worship will never change your life. True worship of God really gives you rest. Worship really does it. Do you have that rest? Do you know how to worship? Please join me in prayer. Holy Father, we want to worship you. We want to ascribe ultimate value to you. We want to see what you are worth. And have that realization of your beauty, of your glory, of your majesty, of your power, of your presence change us. We want the good news of Christ to be so part of our lives. That we are new. We are made new in you. Father, I thank you for these words from your servant, Timothy Keller. Thank you for the way that they can bring alive the truth of your scripture. But more than anything, Lord, may these words open us to your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.